Welcome to Live from Plato's Cave. I am Mario Vey. This is episode 31, Science Denial with Lee McIntyre. The prisoners in Plato's Cave are looking at the cave wall, which has shadows projected onto it by puppets being carried in front of a fire behind them. But what they see is not the shadows on the wall, like a shadow of a cat, but they think they see actual cats and other objects that the shadows represent. In the first part of the allegory, it seems like they are just unaware of what is actually happening, and that if someone were to inform them about the facts, they would change their minds. But in the second part of the allegory, it becomes clear that they are not just unaware of reality, they are denying reality. Because when someone informs them that what they are really looking at is shadows on a wall, and even when they are shown the fire and the puppets being carried in front of it, all they want to do is return to their comfortable seat and believe that everything they have been told about the shadows and the fire is a big conspiracy. So they are choosing the illusion over reality. Just like the prisoners in the cave, our society today is telling itself that it is science-minded that it cares about facts and about evidence. And we can point at flat earthers or anti-vaxxers and laugh at them for having foolish beliefs. But you know what? As a society, we are science deniers when it comes to climate change. Climate science has been clear and is common knowledge at least since the 1990s. The climate crisis that we are in right now has been predicted and we walked into it with our eyes open. And still today, as a society, we are living in Plato's cave, instead of acting on the actual scientific facts of the situation that we're in. And we are about to miss our final exit. We haven't even taken our foot off the gas pedal yet, while what we should be doing is braking. Our last opportunity to do what is necessary according to science is going to pass soon. So if we want our children to grow up in a world that is remotely as livable as the one we grew up in, we better get in touch with reality. We better get in touch with science and start listening to climate scientists about what we need to do. Or rather, what we need to stop doing. So it's urgent to understand how to address science denial. And fortunately, our guide to Plato's cave today is a leading expert on this matter. Lee McIntyre is a philosopher and a scholar of science denial, and he's a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, and a recent lecturer in ethics at Harvard Extension School. Lee is the author of many books for MIT Press, so I will just mention three now. In The Scientific Attitude, Lee argues that we can best understand what is distinctive about science not by focusing on its methods or its achievements, but on those instances of failure to live up to one of its most basic values, the scientific attitude, which is caring about evidence and being willing to change our theories on the basis of evidence. In his upcoming book, Truth Killers, Lee draws on over 20 years of science denial scholarship and takes readers through the history of strategic denialism to show how we arrived at this precarious political moment that we're in right now. In this episode, we will focus a lot on his book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, which, in my opinion, should be obligatory reading if you work at a scientific institution. Lee practices what he preaches, and he doesn't just do desk chair philosophy, 
But for this book, he visited a flat earth convention, spoke to climate science deniers, and visited areas affected by climate change. This book offers tools and techniques for communicating the truth and values of science, emphasizing that the most important way to reach science deniers is to talk to them calmly and respectfully. Something which is, for me, sometimes very challenging. <laughs> but to put ourselves out there and to meet them face to face. Yeah, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed your book. Thank you. It's also the kind of book I like to read because almost half of the book is footnotes. <laughs> but it's but it's <laughs> in the back. So if you don't want to read the footnotes, that's okay. Yeah. But um, yeah, it also allows you to just read the book and if you want to know more about it a little bit you can just dive into the footnotes it's, it's what happens when you publish with mit press because they're a respectable academic publisher and they want the footnotes and the you know the receipts and evidence for everything but they're they've got a trade division that you know wants to sell books for a general audience and so it kind of works out yeah, well, I really like this format because uh, it, I, I didn't read all the footnotes, but when you read a book, some things interest you more than others or you have that's right. personal connection more than others. So yeah. it gives you kind of the, the freedom. Yeah. It's also important in a book like this too because some of my audience are going to challenge me on everything I say. Mm -hmm. And so I have to have the footnotes because otherwise they'll say, well, you just made that up or you're just part of the conspiracy or, you know, that's an unreliable source. Yeah. And so I, I really have to show that, you know, where I got information from. Did this happen already? Did you have any science deniers approaching you? I, I've had I've had a few. Um, yes. All, all, all the time. I mean, I, I have uh, I had a few on that book specifically who. Um, you know, read a few footnotes and wanted to follow up and, you know, got into a, a back and forth about things. And it was also, it's also helpful too, sometimes when people haven't read the footnotes to just be able to say, well, you know, this objection you're making, I, I, I covered, you know, and, and you can find it so that, yeah, no, I, I always, I always get pushed back and that's fine by the way, because that's, um, you know, why I've written the kind of book that I have and why I've got a website with contact information because I, I want to be able to talk with people about it. Yeah, great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about particularly about climate science denial, which I'm mm -hmm. interested in. But yeah, before uh, we do that, how do you so you're a philosopher? I am. Um, at one point, you just decide to to study a topic or you want to write a book about uh, a topic. So how do you approach that? Just whatever interests me. I mean, I, I started out in a very, as you know, most people do when they're philosophers with the uh, with academic philosophy. Um, I have a PhD in philosophy. I was a professor for years, and I was a, uh, am a philosopher of science. And so I wrote things for peer-reviewed journals, uh, you know, about technical topics in the philosophy of science, and then. What really interested me as time went on was this, you know, fundamental question in philosophy of science, what's special about science? How can you defend science? How can you demarcate science from other ways of, of knowing? Because people criticize science. And the fact that people were criticizing science, you know, uh, how do you know that evolution is true? Is evolution the best explanation of, of uh, you know, the world that we have now? Uh, that really fascinated me, and I just followed that thread from attacks on 
science now to attacks on reality. So it's, I mean, as as philosophy goes, those are pretty important things. Reality and science. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so what I found is that my academic interests actually were very consonant with the sorts of things that millions of people were worried about when you know people were pushing back against the vaccines or claiming that climate change wasn't real or then when the problem got worse and you know we had an american president who claimed that he could uh alter the path of a hurricane just by thinking about it or you know all all, all of the things, a sharpie on the map <laughs> that's right yeah. all of the things that that trump did really to deny reality and so I started to want to write public philosophy. I wanted to write for the general public. And so that means that um, I do have to keep in mind that and I have to keep my audience in mind when I'm writing a new book, but it's mostly just what I'm interested in. So how do you start practically? I mean, I can Im imagine you, you read the literature about it. Mm-hmm. But how do you, because you, you don't want to just like know the, you could, you could do like a literature review, right? But how do you yeah. really dive into the topic? It It's funny because it's usually as I'm writing about one thing, new ideas are coming. Yeah, I know that. Some related, <laughs> related thing. Yeah. And, and I don't have time to attend to all of them. So I will, you know, print something out and staple it together and put it aside for later and then just thinking well these topics are unrelated but you know there is an interesting idea but then once i get finished with one book i look at that big pile and realize there's probably another book there and the things that didn't seem related are in fact related and puts together another piece of the puzzle uh just even in the last uh, three or four books that i've done I started writing about, uh, thinking about uh, these sorts of topics with a book I wrote called Dark Ages, which was an argument that we needed a more scientific understanding of human behavior. But then people started to attack science. And I thought, well, okay, we need a better understanding of human behavior, but now they're attacking natural science, so I'd better defend that. And then after that, they started to attack reason, truth, reality. Well, now I'd better defend that. So it is kind of just an evolution in terms of, you know, how bad can this problem get? How how many examples are there? And that's uh, sustained my interest and I hope my audience's interest too, because I think all of these topics are really re related. Truth, reality, science, reason, they're all related. But the story has come out just in the thread that I followed over many years and many books, because they're, they're, it's quite a complicated story and there are a lot of pieces to it. So why do you think it is that there, I mean, there are many things that we can disagree about, right? About what's the best way to uh, run a government or yeah. uh, what, what direction should we go with the plan? But there are some things that are pretty basic. Sure. Like, you know, the shape of the earth. And well, I, I told you I did I did a whole right. episode about flat earthers and I spoke to uh, this guy on, on YouTube, I can science that, and he speaks with flat earthers. He has conversations for two, three mm -hmm. hours. I 
think he may have read your book as well because okay, I see him. Because I, I did a little bit of flat earth work myself. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But just, just before yeah. we get to that, it's like, it seems pretty commonsensical that we live more or less in the same world. But how can it be that people disagree about such fundamental things about reality? It, on one level, it mystifies me. I just, I can't account for it. And so I, and that that's a very motivational thing because then I think, how could anybody believe that? And so I get fascinated with it and want to study it. But I, another piece of it is that over the years, as I've you know been looking at one thing after another, saying how could anybody believe that? I've come to some conclusions and found some patterns in people who are science deniers, people who are reality deniers. And it's that I think that one thing that happens, whether it's our ideological beliefs or political beliefs or economic beliefs, whatever it is, there's a very strong push in human uh, cognition to find evidence for the thing that you want to believe is true, or even to ignore evidence that the thing that you want to believe isn't true, right? We just We have all these built-in cognitive biases that we very strongly want to believe, you know, that the thing that we want to be true is true. And so it takes a really special mindset to challenge our own beliefs. And I think that scientists have that mindset. And I wrote a book about that called The Scientific Attitude. But I think that a lot of people don't have that attitude. They don't really understand how science works. They have a naive picture of how science works. And so they will um not challenge what they believe and then and if it's an important enough belief to them to their ego say to their well-being then they can what do they call it go down the rabbit hole then they can start to just ignore reality as it exists and the the really amazing thing that i discovered in studying this over years based on some work by some other folks, is that all science deniers reason in the same way. This is due to some work developed by uh, John Cook and Stephen Lewandowski. But also some conclusions based on uh, Jonathan Haid and uh, Kahan, Dan Kahan and um, Michael Lynch, that identity is incredibly <clears throat> important in our beliefs, including our denialist beliefs. So. And that's really a shocking thing because it means that sometimes when people are, say, flat earthers or anti-vaxxers, and you ask, well, how could you believe such a crazy thing? It's because everyone else around them believes it, and that's their identity. That's who they are. They're part of that community. And if they didn't believe it, they wouldn't be part of the community. And they won't put it that way to you. And I'm not even sure that everybody understands that. But it's a really fascinating aspect of belief. And I'm talking about empirical belief here, right? Empirical beliefs that they too can be based on identity. So that we end up, as you said, not just disagreeing about values, we end up disagreeing about facts. And so you get these situations where, you know, politicians don't want to believe that something is true about climate, say. And so they pretend that it's not true. And sometimes they even convince themselves that it's not true because 
they're getting too much money from donors or their voters. They don't want to get voted out of Congress. And it it becomes insane. No. Yeah, what I like about your book as well is that you you look at the very extreme cases and also the more mild cases and they follow kind of the same pattern, but they're I the guess, same. They're the yeah. same. That's the interesting. That's why we have to take the extreme ones seriously. Yeah. Even people who think the earth is flat and that's uh, right. Yeah, because they can teach you know, us something about the more subtle form of climate exactly. science denial. Yeah. If you can learn how to, you know, just kind of practice on the worst example that you can imagine, it can get you better and better at having those conversations with people who might seem more reasonable. But but that's what I like about your approach, because you don't just do like a literature review or, or a study yeah. in a lab or interview people even, but you just no, get I on a plane it. and you go undercover I on a flat it. earth convention. <laughs> no, I, I did it. I went out and spoke face to face. And and I'll tell you, you know, I the flat earth convention, I mean, they're definitely science deniers. I mean, absolutely to a person. And I learned a lot in interacting with them. But one thing I also learned in interacting with other people about other topics is not to make assumptions, not to assume that just because somebody pushes back on an empirical belief that it's necessarily um, due to denial, because sometimes it's not. Um, one of the the greatest um, epiphanies that I had in writing my book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, was that some people who are climate deniers are not really climate deniers. They're just people who don't care. And so for whatever reason, it's somehow easier for them to pretend that they don't believe that climate change is real than to say, I don't give a damn. I'm going to keep my car and I don't care about future generations. They, they won't say that. But, you know, what I think really for me what i learned from writing that book is that even if you could convince every climate denier to change his or her mind there's still a problem because it's not the problem that we have is not just what people believe it's what they care about it's what they're willing to do something about and so i think that you actually have a lot of people out there who in their heart and soul, understand that climate change is real. They just don't want to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my my experience speaking, I did speak with flat earthers a little bit, um, and vaccine people, anti-vax people, mm -hmm. and now lately more with climate change. Yeah, my experience in this because that's why I'm also very happy with your book because I was very frustrated with with speaking with them because. Yes. One of one of the experiences is the, is the goalposts keeps moving. So we start with, um, oh, the world isn't really warming. Okay. Next step. Okay, okay, it's warming, but it's not because of us. Okay, it's warming, and maybe because of us, but we're we're not sure. We need we need more research. Okay, it's warming, and maybe because of us, we're sure about it. But it doesn't matter because it's always changing. It's and it, or it's too late. <laughs> or it's, that's, my, that, that's, that's the next step. So <laughs> a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the next step. Um, 
So, okay, it's warming. It's because of us. We're sure about it. It's bad. I'm, by the way, these, these are the steps from Kimberly Nicholas. Sure. I don't know if you know her, but I really like them, like the easy steps. So, uh, okay, it is bad, but we cannot fix it. We cannot do anything about it. It is too late anyway. And that's where I am with most people, I guess, because I speak with most people who are also... That's also another insight I got is that science denial is not just you deny all of science. That's right. No, you can like embrace medical science and physics and all that stuff. But there's maybe one part of, I mean, flat earthers go, go to a hospital and they go in the airplanes. Yeah, they, I mean, science deniers are what I call cafeteria skeptics. They go through the buffet and choose, oh, I want this. I want this. I don't want that. I don't want that. So they... You know, the, the example that I use is that the flat earthers who were in, in Denver when I was there, they they distrusted airline pilots because they thought that they were in on the conspiracy about flat earth, but they flew there. They, they trusted the pilots to get them there. So, you know, so they, they are, uh, they're not true skeptics. I don't think they understand what true skepticism is. And what you brought up before, they're not really reasoning in the way that a scientist does. Because when you change the goalposts every time, um, you're really, I mean, that that's not good empirical reasoning, right? And so the the one, the thing that I, you know, it, I talked about my earlier book, Scientific Attitude, the thing that I was convinced of in writing that book is that what's the real difference with a scientist is that a scientist is willing to say in advance what would change their mind. If you're and if you're not willing to do that, if you can't say in advance what would change your mind, you're not reasoning scientifically. So you know when when the climate denier, you know, keeps moving the goalposts, they're they're not reasoning scientifically. Maybe that doesn't actually upset them, but it's, I mean, that in fact that was one advantage that I had in talking with the flat earthers because they claimed that their beliefs were based on empirical evidence. Yeah. And that they were better scientists than the scientists were. Well, okay, if you're going to play that game, then we're going to talk about how you're reasoning, which is what I did. But sometimes talking to you know other sorts of deniers, no evidence could convince them, and they embrace that. A talk to uh, evolution deniers sometimes, you know, and I mean, look, when it's a matter of faith, like a lot of evolution denial is. I don't think you can convince them. I don't think there's anything you can say because their belief is not about evidence. Um, uh, what did what did Jonathan Swift say? You you can't reason somebody out of something they didn't reason themselves into in the first place. If the, if it's not based on evidence, evidence isn't going to convince them to give it up. I think this is still in the part where you're with the flat earthers, where you start to ask what evidence, if it were there, could convince you to change your mind. That's right. That's that's the question. That's Karl Popper, maybe the most famous philosopher of science who ever lived. That's his question. Yeah. And it's a great one. And if it's not nothing, okay, then well, you can have a different conversation. Well, if it, the, the interesting thing is if they when I ask that question of a flat earther, they were quiet. They didn't know how to answer it. Or they would say proof, at which point I'd say, well, wait a minute, scientists can't prove things. That's not what science is. Science is 
know, empirical reasoning. Um, you know, have you ever heard of the problem of induction? No, usually not. But, you know, we would have that conversation about how science actually works. I mean, it's not Euclidean geometry. It's not deductive logic. You can't prove. So then you go to the the unrealistic expectations of science because it's, exactly. for instance, with climate change, they say, well, they, the models have an uncertainty factor and uh, all that stuff, yeah. It, it it is frustrating, and the I think that the the only thing sometimes nothing works, mm -hmm. but if something is going to work, it's to build trust through face to face conversation, and you do that by being patient and respectful and listening to what they have to say. Otherwise, it can become a, an angry encounter. Um, Think about all the uh, trouble over anti-vax around the world. Think of you know how how angry people get. Even you know films of physical confrontations over vaccines. Um, that's that's a real danger. And I mean, and you definitely won't change anybody's mind if they're angry. Um, and the, you know the the problem though is that the method is hard to use to get it right to you know to work and even if it does work there are so many millions of people how can you get to all of them i mean it's yeah. just it's a frustrating thing which so while i was writing my book how to talk to a science denier about just what we're talking about that problem occurred to me that problem of, well, wait a minute, even if this is successful, will it solve the problem? And I thought, no, uh, not completely. There's something else going on here. And so I was printing off these articles and, you know, reading these papers and putting them off to the side for later on the problem of disinformation. Because another conclusion I came to it, that made its way into the current book, but is also the subject of my next book, uh, you know, more, is that... Um, Denial doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from disinformers who are doing this on purpose. Most people who believe false things about science don't just make them up. They believe them because somebody lied to them. And so how do we stop the liars? How do we stop the liars who have all the reach through YouTube and you know social media to convince people of false things? Think about all the false information about vaccines. Why did that happen? That's not just misinformation. Those are lies that someone so created. There's, I guess, a, yeah, distinction between misinformation and disinformation, right? Crucial. You know, I have a lot of misinformation about many topics because I'm not an expert. So I probably have yeah. a lot of beliefs that are not uh, accurate. Yeah. But disinformation is purposeful, right? It, it it is, and and the and the problem for the people who are victimized by it is that if you suffer from misinformation, then you might be convinced by getting the facts. Yeah, but if you suffer from disinformation, the facts that might not work. And here's why: it's because the the goal of the person creating the disinformation is not just to get you to believe something false; it's to hate the person who's telling the truth. It's to create that uh, distance 
that that polarization, right? So I think that distrust, the goal of distrust is not just to get you to create doubt, but also, uh, I'm sorry, the goal of disinformation is to create distrust, not just doubt. Um, and that's a very dangerous thing, because that means that you can't just share the facts with somebody and get them to change their mind. You've got to overcome the fact that they distrust you. Not only, you know, so it's not just that they haven't heard the facts, but they think that you're lying to them. Yeah. And so that that is a problem from hell. It really is. I'm writing a I'm writing a paper right now called Disinformation, a Problem from Hell, because it, 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 <laughs> it really is. Yeah. is. It is um, because you can't really, I mean, all the uh, things that you would normally do to solve a problem or something like that, they they fail. You try to convince somebody, you try to use yeah. arguments. You know, imagine somebody who didn't trust you. And whatever you say, you can be an expert on it. It doesn't matter because they don't trust you. You know, if if somebody wants to go swimming but it's dangerous and you say well you know you shouldn't go out because you know there's uh the stinging jellyfish and they say well that's just fake news you say no no here's this article well that's a made-up article i mean you know you're trying to save their life but they don't trust you it's not just they don't trust the facts it's they don't trust the messenger that that's a problem and so that's another advantage of the you know talking face-to-face -face model is that it goes to really what the heart of the problem is, which is distrust. It's not just lack of information, it's distrust. Yet, I faced the problem that you, you can't, con not only can you not convert every denier, convert every one of them to trust you, but new ones are being created every day as long as the disinformation exists in the information sphere. So how do we stop that? How do we keep the liars from creating their lies and spreading them and creating a whole new set of victims. It, it's like a disease that's out of control. Even if you could treat all the sick, you know, until you stop the infectious source, they're just going to be more sick people. So I'm going to ask you a question I already know the answer to. <laughs> yeah. The, the ExxonMobil study that came out a few weeks ago yeah. about ExxonMobil knowing about yeah. Climate change more accurately than most climate scientists at the time. They were good scientists, weren't yeah. they? Did th did it come as a surprise to you? I've known about that for some time. Um, it, that, that the evidence for that has been out, although not necessarily in popular media for a long time. I'm glad that it made its way to the New York Times. But you know, there was even a story in the New York Times a few years back that said substantially the same thing. I mean, it, it's kind of, they're kind of levels to it. You know, did, did they, did they know, um, you know, that, that evidence, people suspected that they knew for a lot longer than, than that. But, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, there has been evidence that they did know. One of which was a leaked memo from ExxonMobil, which showed that even while their scientists were predicting that the continued use of fossil fuels was going to result in melting of the polar ice cap. Another group of scientists at ExxonMobil were saying, great, that means we can drill more wells in the <laughs> Arctic. That's like Dr. Strange laugh and how yeah. I learned to laugh the ball. That's yeah. <laughs> cynical, right? So not only did they know and have a moral failing, 
they were exploiting it. It's it's horrid. It's really it's really horrid. The um, the footnote on the earlier story about Exxon Mobil knowing is in my book. So it's old enough. I know it was uh, two thousand from two thousand fifteen, and I think fifteen. Uh, yeah, even going back more. Yeah, it's a, it goes back before, but but I mean, but you're talking about, but just within the last three weeks, there was a story in the New York yes. Times about this. Uh, and I guess they updated the story in some way. And I did read the story, but I thought, well, yes. We, we <laughs> knew this the, already, but we, we knew, knew already, already from 1998, the meeting where the, the oil yeah. companies, yeah. Shell, ExxonMobil, BP. That's right. And that's the so, part. I mean, uh, yeah, sorry. So I mean, the update, I guess, is look how brilliant their scientists were and how accurate their models were. Yeah. So it wasn't just that they knew. It was that they were maybe the leading scientists in the world. They had the best climate data models of any scientists in the world. That that was really the update to the story. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, sir. It's I interrupted you because, um, and this is exactly also why I wanted to talk to you because uh, I get quite emotional from this. If yeah. I don't know how it is in the United States, but I live in the Netherlands. Uh, I think Shell is originally a Dutch company. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, um, Shell in the Netherlands has kind of an image of being a green company because they have their advertisements that they're oh, leading. Sure. Of course, they do. Uh, there was, Greenwash. there was, yeah, there was an interview this weekend with with the ex CEO uh, of Shell about leadership and uh, milieu defense, which is called, I think, Friends of the Earth. In uh, it's like an organization they yeah. Uh, yeah, sued, yeah, sure. they sued Shell. Um, Basically, what they demanded is that they stick to the uh, climate goals, uh, and Shell is so the judge uh, gave them, you know, uh, ruled in the favor of the milieu defense, and now mm -hmm. Shell is is appealing in court because they oh, don't uh, want of to course. do it. because they want to put up the greenwashing commercial, yeah. but they don't want to actually do anything. I mean, the 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 part of their research budget that's devoted to algae and all these other things is you know half of one percent. There and but they put up a commercial about it. To make themselves look good. Meanwhile, it wasn't that many years ago that the fossil fuel companies were were donating money to the denialist think tanks about climate change, and may still be. It's just difficult to get that information. We've we've stopped the, the um, that information is now secret. You know, they're 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 not. They they claim that they've all stopped. Well, have they? You know, we're we're not sure. And. You know, there's some of these think tanks uh, say that they'll sue you if you make a false claim. And so, you know, who wants to make a false claim without the evidence? But it is um, it is a. It is true to say that we do have evidence from not that many years ago that the fossil fuel companies were not only hiding the research, but they were donating money to the people who they knew were wrong, uh, who were denying it. So, and it is an emotional topic. It's an upsetting topic. I mean, what one of the things I talked about in my book was um, the Maldives. The, the Maldives are going to disappear someday. And it, that's, a, that, that's a horrible tragedy. I mean, the people who live there are going to lose their home. They they're, have this enormous tax that on visitors, as they should, for their sovereign wealth fund so that they can afford to go somewhere else. Meanwhile, they're building another island 
right next to their capital that's a taller so that they've got a place to bug out for a few years. I mean, it's tragic what's going on. Yeah, and yeah, and that's that's still even in the future. I talked to a friend in Pakistan today, and they had uh, well horrible flood and everything. Yeah, uh, but you in the United States as well, huh? With um, of course, we cannot link everything directly to climate change, but um, no, but but the you know the the evidence is there. I mean, it's not a question. This is part of the denial. Or, oh, we we don't have the definitive evidence, and uh, we have enough to you know to know it's influencing the. You know the the uh, the rains in California. The the one that caught my attention a few years back was that there's an island in um, Chesapeake Bay uh, called Tangier Island, T A N G I E R. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's in the United States. They're as much at risk as Maldives. Yeah, Tangier Island is going to be gone about the same time the Maldives is gone. And here's the really delicious part of it. Most of the residents of Tangier Island are conservatives. You know, they're conservative Republicans who may believe, you know, be climate deniers, but they won't be climate deniers for long when their island begins to disappear. And I shouldn't say delicious because that makes it sound like I'm enjoying it. I'm not. It's just that it's, it's upsetting to see that you know, people, I guess that's what denial is about. Even when the water is coming up around their ankles, they're denying what it's from. Yeah, that's why I wasn't so sure if they're still not going to uh, if change. Because, I mean, the, the the oil companies took their strategy from the tobacco companies. They and did, yeah. That was very successful and people are still smoking. and um... still Yeah, and, and, you know, and you look at Florida. Florida's got terrible flooding in areas that it never had before. People are starting to take it more seriously. Um, You know, the problem with things like vaccine denial, climate denial, is that they become politically polarized. And talk about identity. Then it's, well, if you're a Republican, you've got to believe this. If you're a Democrat, you've got to believe this. And that's a terrible thing, because then people are not even making up their own mind. They're just believing what their team is supposed to believe. And, you know, in the United States, that's half the country. We we couldn't get any meaningful uh, legislation through Congress for decades because of the stranglehold that the um, climate deniers in the Republican Party had on the American Congress. So here's really, for me, the core issue, because multinationals, you know, not caring about people dying and everything. Okay, that's, right. <laughs> that's, that's nothing new, right? Yeah. Um, but as you really show over and over again in your book, ultimately it comes down to speaking face to face, not on social media, but uh, yeah. preferably in to person. someone, yeah, with a relationship, and you it can be someone at your work or a family or something like that. And um, for me, the main thing that that is gets in the way for me is the emotional side of it because that's part of why I do this. But sure. I also just um cannot believe that people who in many other areas are are very scientific mm-hmm. that there's this part and they they don't do something but they're in a position that they can do something so i don't need to convince the whole world but it's about like what they say the adults in the room right well y- y- yes and and i mean for many for many years the problem in the united states was not the millions of people who didn't believe in climate change, it was about the 15 of them in Congress. 
<laughs> in the Senate, they were the ones who were holding things up. So, I mean, that's that's an important lesson too. It's you could make yourself crazy going out there trying to convince the hardcore deniers that you're never going to get, but who are the people who actually are holding things up? You know, who yeah, has exactly. power yeah. to to make a difference? And you know, and I, climate change. I think of the fact that. Um, there are more electric cars now. You know, uh, uh, Ford Motor Company has now said that their F-150, which is their most popular truck, will be all electric by, was it 2025, 2026, something like that. I mean, that that's when the change will really happen, I think, when people have alternatives. Because some people say, oh, I don't believe it because they don't know what else they would do. But when there start to be alternatives, when they start to understand, you know, oh, well, I don't have to buy a gas-powered vehicle, or you know, I I don't have to use a gas stove and have you know the latest thing. All the the methane emissions, you know, we can do it a different way. It once once that starts to become more available. Now, of course, it's too late. I mean, it is too late. It's 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 not too late to do something, and we need to do everything we can. But it's too late to prevent it. It's you know not twenty years ago, but yeah, of course, yeah, we're, we're doing everything we can. We're in a climate crisis already, but every already. You know, fraction of a degree matters. Yeah, ev everything that we do now matters so much. Um, what, what's the thing about the best time to plant a tree was twenty years ago? The second best time is today. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, we we can't control the past, but we can do something now. But what are your ideas or expectations for people switching into like treating it like a crisis because people are you know uh the general feel at least in the netherlands now more is that okay it's a real thing we should be concerned about it we should do something but step by step or about the economy or about um yeah. our curriculum is already so full like in medical schools for instance so uh, but there's so what's missing is from the corona pandemic which you write about as well in your book right there are people started to do things like you you treat a crisis like a crisis but yeah and, and and that's the thing i mean that that was the sad thing when the pandemic started because i mean i was writing my book while that was unfolding yeah and i was watching it and thinking okay this is like climate change and uh, Climate change is like a pandemic in slow motion, right? But now with a pandemic where it's really fast and people's lives are at stake, not 10 years from now or 20 years from now, but right now, you know, what what is this going to look like? And unfortunately, it unfolded to the same pattern that we saw with climate denial. And, and even now with, you know, the pandemic not over, but you know, over enough that a lot of people are getting back to normal as much, you know, they can with the new normal. Um, are we even prepared for the next pandemic? Did we learn anything? Well, not here for sure. I think we're we're very lucky that the virus is going down. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I and and so the thing, this is why I do the work that I do, because to me, it's the messaging, it's the it's it's the infodemic, right? It's the it's the problem of where we get our, our information and how it's amplified. So I'm I'm really focusing in my new work, in my new book, on the the pinch points. You know, the the not convincing everybody, but what are the particular 
things that, you know, if, if you think of it as a pipeline, but if you hold down on this part of the pipe, then it's the problem's going to get better. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about that now. And I'm convinced that the problem is disinformation. I'm convinced that the problem is that people are constantly being reinforced in their false beliefs by a new crop of lies. And that is a a, a very serious problem. Um, I wish that the media did more on that. One one thing that I'm uh, uh, hoping is that the media does more on the distinction between mis- and disinformation. Because if you watch the major cable networks, even when they talk about this problem, they talk about it as a, as a kind of like it's a natural disaster, like it's a mistake or an accident. It's not, it's a lie. And somebody needs to say it's a lie because then there are liars and then you can figure it out. You, you know, there was a piece, and I can't remember whether this was published, but but maybe you know, there was a piece that was published, um, I think it was last year, on the 100 people that were most responsible for climate change. You know, companies, people, nameable entity. And they ranked them from one to, you know, 100. That needs to get out. I mean, people need to understand when, you know, what they're doing that can make a difference, who's responsible. Sander Vanderlinen had a terrific piece in the New York Times recently where he had that, I'm sure you saw that little quiz about what are the most important interventions that we as individuals can make in uh, preventing climate change. And, you know, most, and people take that quiz in the privacy of their home and they realize, oh, I was really mistaken. I've got a lot of false ideas but then he gives the you know correctly identifies that you know being a vegan uh not doing so much international travel and not owning a car maybe the three biggest things that you can do but who knew right it depends it depends on who you are i mean these are individual choices but if you work in an organization and you're able to speak up in meetings yes uh, or and and there's if you're able to invest money in, I think there, right. there's like this third act movement in the United States. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like people retiring and, and they have money to spend and they use that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's really important because the, I mean, and money is still part of it because if you think about, think about, uh, I don't know if you, if you know who this is, but uh, uh, Joe Manchin is a senator in the United States, yeah, yeah. the Democrat from West Virginia, right? So he is has a lot of coal money, a lot of fossil fuel money that, of course, changes the way that, you know, he's going to vote. Um, the, I mean, there are structural problems that I think maybe can only be solved by government or by mass protest, to, you know, to make government solve it. You know, I, I interviewed coal miners in in eastern Pennsylvania about their views on climate change. And I went in there foolishly thinking that, you know, they were going to run the range. No, everybody I spoke with believed in climate change. They just didn't know what they could do about it. Were they supposed to quit their job and let their family starve? What were they supposed to do? There are only 50,000 coal miners left in the United States. You know, if if we could have a structural solution to 
get them jobs to help them in whatever way possible and get off of coal. Think what a difference that would make. But we've got this screwed up political system where Joe Manchin has so much power and, and he's corrupt. And I say that even though he's a Democrat. That's that's the strange thing to realize is that we have already we have all the solutions already. We have all the even the yes. political frameworks, we have all the technology, we have all the knowledge. I mean, of course, if we have more, it might be uh, better. But yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's the thing holding us back is not that we don't have the technology. Yeah. Or the understanding we don't have the will. Yeah, so when reading about you know you having these conversations with flat earthers and and other science mm -hmm. deniers mm -hmm. and then i read later in your bio that you were also a martial arts practitioner yeah i think now yeah. not so much anymore right no i i hurt myself so i went on to other things but i yeah. practiced shotokan for a long time so i wonder because uh in what i talked to you about earlier about you know one of the I, I practice Tai Chi and a little bit mm -hmm. Wing Chun. And one of the most important things when you're in a fight is even before any technique is to stay calm because there's like this natural reaction. Someone touches you and you get very tense. But the moment you're tense, you cannot, you're not effective because yeah. you're, yeah. if you want to hit, your muscles must be relaxed first. If they're already tense, you know, they're, that's they teach yeah. that in Shotokan. You you are faster from a relaxed position than from a tense one. Yeah, yeah. So I was just wondering about did did this influence you in any way in your work in talking you know, to people? I have to say I hadn't thought of it until you brought it up because I mean I'd I'd been doing Shotokan for it's a just long time. Something you do, I'm yeah. Interested, you know, but but I hadn't I hadn't thought about the relationship of uh, in not combat but confrontation you know interaction with other people but now that you bring it up it's kind of interesting isn't it because i mean and that's also taught in shotokan avoid the fight you know uh, uh, avoid the uh, the confrontation but of course here when we're talking about talking with people about their beliefs we're not wanting to completely avoid any interaction or just you know walk away we're wanting to engage them but in a respectful way you know to try to make to make progress um so so it's really a fascinating question that you bring up you know me thinking about uh, about uh, martial arts and and as i was you know meditating on it and thinking you know is there an analogy here i thought of one but it's not so much for your interaction with the other person but your interaction with yourself in your own brain because one of the most important things that I ever um, read about martial arts was that your opponent is not your real opponent. Your real opponent is the fear that you have in confronting your opponent. And that if you can conquer that, then you are better, right? And the, the way this was put was, who would you rather fight right the person who was you know tense and you know angry or the person who you know understood themselves and was just focused on you the you know the second one is actually the much more dangerous person so i, I butchered that that quotation but the, <laughs> the, the, but my my point is 
that was a lifelong struggle with me in martial arts. How to get hit and be calm and look for advantage, you know, look for what I was going to do next, you know, have the fight that I was actually in, not the one I thought I was going to be in. Um, and, you know, Shotokan, as you know, is a pretty hard style. I mean, yeah. we're, it's not it's not a soft style. It's, you know, it's not the you know, hardest, like Kyokushin. My God, you know, what are they doing? Breaking off bullhorns, right? Or tree branches. But uh, Shotokan is is very hard. But but even so, there is a philosophy of, uh, you know, uh, avoiding direct confrontation where you can. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I'm interested in your thoughts on this analogy because this was a really intriguing question. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm always fascinated by how because we practice different styles, but mm -hmm. if if you just go, you know, fundamental enough, it's all the same. <laughs> oh, exactly. It, it is exactly the same. I yeah. I used to have a um, class I taught on philosophy of mind, and I had a section called Mind Over Matter, where I would come in and um do a quick demonstration of shotokan uh, and it turned out that there was another person in the english department who did uh tai chi and so i asked him to start coming and doing a demonstration of tai chi and it was interesting for the students to see side by side um and then at one point we you know he would demonstrate some move and although he was going much slower the his understanding of my weak points were pretty excellent <laughs> and you know so there's one point at which he did some move and then followed through and you know kind of had me down on the ground and the students thought oh i see it's not just about breaking boards and you know the the key it's you know the understanding of the movement and you know what's there yeah 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 so i think some of the things you said i i thought about that too like one is that um uh, of course you can train martial arts just to like kill somebody or hurt them as much as possible yes. but but that's not really i mean it's about uh for instance if you're attacked you want to st stop somebody incapacitate them but not more not using more force not, than you not need more to. than you need and the yeah. Mo yeah it's the same with you know with with, uh, with weapons or something the the most risk to get injured is to get in a fight so you also don't want to get into a fight oh you get in a knife fight you're going to get cut That's, exactly I don't care so how, I don't it's care better. how good you are yeah, yeah. you get, get cut but then you need um, to kind of know you need yeah so for me i was thinking about it's more like a way of like, way of being but that that sounds maybe like uh, abstract but more like a physical an emotional way of being where you can remain calm and think clear so the first thing that happens in a fight is you start to yeah but that's it's like a verbal fight or a physical fight you start to argue somebody's talking you're talking but i'm not listening yeah, to you i'm you, already you thinking of up. what yeah you tense up and uh you're in the future you're not in the present and um maybe if you're in the present you find ways in which you can actually come to an understanding you, you know the the interesting one that occurs to me here is a, a martial art that i've never practiced but both of my children have a uh, brazilian jiu-jitsu oh i love that I've, i haven't where, i've done some judo but not where, uh, i no. mean it's because you're you're using the other person's energy against them yeah and you're constantly searching for you know the weakness in their in their position and and how does the match end you get them to tap right you get them yeah. to admit okay you were right 
I was wrong. I'm tapping, right? Isn't that <laughs> yeah. what we're doing in a conversation with anti-vaxxers? Isn't it a kind of, you know, verbal jujitsu? But but what I'm thinking of is, you know, in a way, when you're having a conversation with somebody and they're being irrational, sometimes the best thing you can do is to just let them talk and be quiet because yeah. they will tell you what you need to refute them. They will show you where their weak points are. That's what you do in judo, isn't it? Right? Mm -hmm. You're figuring out, okay, they've overcommitted to this position. So if I just give them a little push here, they're going to go over. And so it, it is a way of, you know, using the energy that the other person's giving you to defeat them. Now, the whole idea of, you know, who wins, who loses, that's maybe not the best analogy for a conversation, you know, where we're trying to convince somebody, because that's, if you go into that with a combative mindset, you're not going to overcome the trust. But one thing I really like about what I saw both my kids do in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is it's a very um, complementary martial art, right? It's very much a kind of a trusting relationship. You know, you roll and you, the person wins this time and you win the next time, but you learn whether you succeed or you fail, you learn what works, what doesn't. I, uh, I I like that very much. Yeah, my teacher always says as well that you, so he says that when he was training, he was always looking for the strongest opponents because that's when you learn the most. Then you lose mm -hmm. probably the most, but uh, well, you also but, learn but you, a lot from it. Yeah. That, that's, uh, I, I think that's a very Bruce Lee type uh, <laughs> uh, thing as yeah. well. You know, um, my, my, it's interesting. I I did karate when I was a very young teenager, and then gave it up for many years after. You know, I put a few years into it and gave it up, as so many people do. But then, when my kids were small, got back into it. I got back into it, and you know that was really enjoyable. We all did it together, and, yeah. and then they went on and did other martial arts. But I finally hurt myself to the point where I couldn't really do it anymore because of the repetitive motion it's either a bone chip or rotator cuff or something that you know if i do 200 punches you know then i can't lift my arm so what do you do after that right i'd been doing shotokan for years and years and years okay so what's next i went i i was driving home one night and from karate and i was really upset because you know my arm was killing me and i saw this picture window of a, uh, an exercise class and everybody had a huge smile on their face. And I thought, that's what I want to do. Well, what <laughs> it turned out to be was something called bar. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are the exercises for ballet without the dancing, right? It's oh, just perfect. The, yeah. <laughs> kind of the warm up exercise for ballet. But here was the absolutely humbling part of it. I started that class and there were most of the clientele were women from 18 to 30 years old who had been dancers and they put me to shame because i thought i was strong no i was not strong they were incredible what they could do i mean some of the stress positions you know you think you get into kibidachi you're in a stress position <laughs> no um some of the stress positions some of the small muscles um i was really not strong um, and I say that with all respect to, to Shotokan, I was not strong in every way that I could have been. Uh, I had to do that other thing to, to learn how to do that. Mm. And it was, uh, 
it could have been humiliating. It wasn't. I'm old enough that, you know, go in there with gray hair. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're all stronger than me. All right. But, and it was, uh, I learned, I learned something even then uh, coming out of it. And I mean, that's not a martial art, but, well, but I, I learned something about yeah. human interaction. Yeah, the the I I read somewhere that the martial so the kung fu about martial art kung fu is doing something committed every day and practicing it. So I think anything can be like in that way uh, kung fu, something that you just yeah. get better and better at, but you're not not uh, focused on it. Mar Bruce Bruce Lee was a philosophy major in college. Did you know? Oh, that? really? Yeah, yeah. He was. He was. So he came from yeah. Wing Chun, right? Yeah, he did. And what you just told me also reminds me of this these stories about you know balancing the chi. So first the the master like they break an iron bar or something, and then right. they have to paint the painting so that it's in the balance again. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, let's just go right away to Plato's cave because sure. <laughs> to to balance the chi, right? Absolutely. <laughs> that, well, this this is what your show is uh, is called, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Plato's cave. Let's. Let's go to Plato's cave. What's your what's your take on this from the perspective of what you're writing about philosophy of so, science and science denial? So I taught philosophy for many years and I love to teach Plato and I love to use the Plato's cave, you know, to kind of as an introduction to talking about philosophy. And I, I'm not teaching anymore, but the it's it stayed with me because what I think about now is that in the cave it's not a denial that reality exists it's just that you can't see it directly you can infer it based on the evidence of your senses but since your back is turned and you're only seeing the shadows on the wall you're not i mean if you're a prisoner in the cave you really can't be sure of of what you're seeing and that idea of I think that there, I think there's a lesson there for how we practice science, because, I mean, obviously a lesson for philosophy, but I think a lesson for science too, because science is inference. Science is looking at the evidence, which is indicative of reality, but it's maybe not reality itself. And we're inferring things about reality based on the evidence. And we always have to hold out the idea that we're fallible human beings. While we're making these inferences, we could be wrong. There could be further evidence that comes later. And that strikes me as exactly what you know Plato said about the prisoners in the cave, right? We're while we're embodied, while we're chained in the cave, you know, they thought while we're embodied here on earth, we can't know reality. That's not the point of philosophy. The point of philosophy is to engage in a practice that will allow you to purify your soul that when you die, then you will contemplate reality. Now, I don't I don't necessarily believe you know that specific you know aspect of it, but I but I love the analogy. I love the idea that we need to be humble because we can't know reality directly. And you know, as I've gotten older especially as I've gotten older, the thing that offends me more than anything is hubris. The hubris of people who think they know the answer when they don't. Sometimes that can be scientists. 
Sometimes it can be science deniers. Sometimes it can be theists. Sometimes it can be atheists. I mean, there are people, and I'm not trying to draw a false equivalence here. I'm just saying that hubris is a kind of a universal human quality. And so we need to be careful, I think, of the fact that we really can't know everything. And that is not an excuse for denial, but it's not an excuse for pretending that we have certainty either. And I think that's the right attitude to go in when you talk to people who don't believe what you believe, that you're you're not just trying to convince them, you're sharpening up your own argument because you're um you're not um you're not necessarily sure that you're right. I mean, you're learning something from the encounter. You're not just trying to educate them and beat them, but you should be learning something too, even if it's just how can I make my point better. And I guess they they could uh, always say something. They they might have a point. Maybe the point they think they have is not the oh, point yes. they have for you, but they might yeah. ask a question. Well, what about... I mean, I yes. learned a lot about my high school physics again, speaking to flat earthers. Yeah, absolutely. So you I mean, would be saying, oh, that's just bullshit and, and yeah. you're stupid and blah, blah, blah. But they're, wow, they're somewhere quite intelligent. Well, and when they say, why, well, so why can't you see, um, you know, why does it feel like we're not moving? There's the best evidence. Yeah, and, you a know, good the question. Yeah. You know, okay, well, we, you know, you got to do some physics to think, you know, think about that. Why, why doesn't it? feel like we're moving. And so, I mean, the principle of charity and philosophy says that you shouldn't just fight against the weakest version of your opponent's argument. You should, in your own mind, make it stronger. You know, fight against, not just because they're a weak arguer, but think about, well, what if they were a better arguer? Would they have a point? Am I wrong? How well, How is my point responding to what they could say, not just what they did say? Um, this, this is what I love about philosophy, that it that it does that. And it's why when I went in, you know, to talk to the flat earthers, I didn't want to talk to them about facts. I wanted to talk to them about how they were reasoning. Because that's where I think the real difference was. There was no fact that I could share with them that was going to change their mind. But by talking, by saying, well, I, I don't want to talk about Galileo or Newton or Aristarchus. I want to talk about why you believe this conspiracy theory, but not that one. Or, you know, how you could have a double standard about evidence. Why you think that I need proof of what I'm saying, but you don't even need, you know, an experiment to show that what you're saying is right. How, how is that? How, how can you do that? You know, and, and they, I have to say, some of them were quite engaged by that. And one of the guys that I spoke to was very intelligent, um, you know, great debater. And, and I did learn... I mean, I learned, I didn't change my mind about the shape of the earth, but I learned something about how people reason yeah. about empirical beliefs. Yeah. So I guess you're you're staying in the cave in your analogy. Oh, we, we how can we can't get out of it until our <laughs> until we until we practice enough philosophy and we die in a purified way and our stole strips off from our body and we contemplate the forms with uh, all of our. Uh, uh, People who came before us—that's what—that's what Socrates. <laughs> yeah, but, but even that—that's their I'm, myth, right? It, that's yeah, their myth. But in in the story, even when he's unchained and he turns around, 
I think the first part is that uh, whoever releases him is starting to point to all the objects, but he still doesn't believe him. He still doesn't uh, see him, right? And then he drags him up and he still doesn't believe it. He it's still only, doesn't believe it? Only when he sees like the, the, the sun. That, I think that's the point where, where he starts to think, yeah. well, maybe there's something to it. But but now you, you you have to remind me because it's been a while since I read the Republic. That that's just all an analogy, right? They, he doesn't. They don't actually think that we can know the truth while we're embodied. I mean, that's the chain metaphor, right? While we're embodied yeah. here on Earth, I mean, look at Socrates um, for all his uh, bluster. I mean, he's he's pretty humble guy. He's he doesn't think that he can know. Mm -hmm. there's that uh, i forget which dialogue it is but where he's talking about what happens to you after death he doesn't pretend to know yeah yeah he just doesn't fear it he doesn't fear it because it, primarily because he says i don't know and and what is fear of death but fear of the unknown and why should you fear the unknown and then he says something really brilliant that i haven't seen anywhere else in in all my reading what if death is just like before we were born are you afraid of that? I mean, so, you know, so he's reasoning about this, but he can't know until he's, until he's gone. So, so, so the analogy, the thing in the, about the cave was an analogy, you know, forcing somebody up, look at the sun. Yeah. That's yeah. just all a, a big metaphor, a brilliant metaphor, but a no, metaphor. That, that's why I like it because it's like, I'm not okay. There's one part where you can put it in the context of the Republic and study it, you know, according to the methods of academic philosophy. And right. I mean, that's great one part as well, but there are many, you can do many things to it. And I think it's a way, um, also to tell a story or to to speak with yes. people about different i mean i had one episode with a, a geologist and she brilliantly explained like the history of the geosciences through this metaphor and making clear that one of the things well speaking about climate change one of the things that's lacking our in our society is uh, geologic literacy uh, literacy yes so we still have the ideas way back and that makes it very difficult to communicate some things about uh science and yes. but you can use the you can use it so you can misuse it the other part is where i really agree with the like the humility is even in uh the form of the republic so i spoke with mark reinhardt who who wrote mm -hmm. about this that yeah. even in the republic um you know plato is showing that the kind of philosophy that he talks about is not something that he can communicate or that can be done so it, he's even asked at one point, okay, well, can you can you explain me how to like how to get to the surface? He says, no, no, I can't. <laughs> no, and it, it's and it's maybe it's different for every person. They're all on their own, you know, journey from in some way. But the thing that I that I actually adore the most about Socrates, the thing that I always teach the first day when I do introduction to philosophy. And this is directly relevant to my work on science denial, is that false knowledge is worse than ignorance. Yeah. Because if you're ignorant, you can still learn. But if you think you know the answer, then there is impediment to you learning. Mm -hmm. And so false knowledge, denial, I, I think he was really onto something there. And if you think about most of what 
Socrates does in the dialogues, he's destroying people's false knowledge. He may not get to the answer, but he's showing that, you know, Theotetus and, you know, all these other people don't, they think they know, but they don't. And maybe he doesn't either, but now you, you've actually made progress. Just to admit that you don't know is to have made progress, because then you can build on, on that basis of, with empirical fact. Now, of course, they had a whole different epistemology about how, you know, learning was recollection and that, I mean, the, the idea of empirical knowledge was not really developed. They, you know, thought that you learned by remembering what was in your soul that you knew from the life before you were embodied. Okay, that's a different epistemology, definitely. But, you know, the, but the the idea that you, that if you're arrogant and you think you know when you don't, you're worse off than if you're ignorant. I think there's something to that. Mm -hmm. So then, okay, so maybe this is my last question because uh, we haven't really talked about the, the, the actual strategies yet that science deniers use. Yeah. Uh, one of those strategies is having a impossible expectations for science. Correct. And there's a difference between the image of science and how it works that exists in society and the way science actually works. I, I did Absolutely. an episode Absolutely. about that. But how much of that is to blame on, on scientists themselves? I, I, my PhD was in science communication, and so I also recognize what you wrote about the, the information yeah. deficit model that scientists yeah. communicate yeah. to the public as if they don't have all the information, but they also tend to communicate from like a positivistic, solutionistic idea of yeah. science sometimes. I, I, so if if you've never read my book scientific attitude you you might enjoy it because i oh, i great. actually am, yeah. I, I embrace this this that's the question that the book is to answer okay great um i'll give you the short short version of it i think that scientists need to embrace the idea of uncertainty i think that uncertainty being comfortable with uncertainty is scientists understand that when scientists communicate with one another, it's understood that there are error bars on everything that they say, and that you know it, they could be refuted by future evidence, and that there was some experiment that could prove them wrong. That's just the context of their understanding when they're talking with other scientists. Probabilities, but somehow when scientists are some scientists when they're communicating with the general public when people are attacking them, questioning their integrity, claiming they're just in it for the money, they're lying to them. It can be, it can be um, seductive to say, no, no, we know this. This is proven. This is fact. We're, we're certain that this is true. That, and that's a mistake because no matter how good your evidence, if you ever have to take that back, then you've destroyed trust. And once trust is gone, it's very hard to rebuild. I think that what, um, I, I don't want to say it's scientists' fault. Um, what I want to emphasize is that I think that it can seem threatening to a scientist when they're challenged by a denier, you know, to give even an inch, to say, well, you know, that's an interesting point you've made. Because then they'll just, oh, I won, I won, I won. Mm. But I think, again, soft style, 
this is Tai Chi. <laughs> I think I think you have to do that when it's intellectually honest to do so, because that builds trust and that helps you, you know, begin to engage them in a uh, in a better way. Because um pretending that you have the answer when you don't is fraught. And um I understand as a human being, it's hard when you get attacked, when somebody accuses you of being a liar or, you know, greedy or, you know, you're you're in some worldwide conspiracy to keep the truth about climate change from every or the shape of the earth from everybody else. You know, I understand why they would rebel against that. But the way to push back against that is not to pretend that you have certain knowledge. It can be to say, this is so overwhelmingly likely to be true that we should believe it. That's okay. That's the fallibilist model that I think is correct here. You know, the, the Reuters just uh, had a, a thing that they published a few years back, which said that the the evidence in favor of climate change, you know, the anth anthropogenic model of climate change was now at the five sigma level. Well, okay, so what's the difference between saying to a climate denier, you're wrong and saying there's a one out of a million chance that you're right. There's not really that much difference between them. So why is the temptation to say, well, you're wrong and it's been proven? Because then if they can find even one little thing to push back against, they, they'll feel justified. Whereas I think the appropriate response is to say, it's foolish to uh, believe the thing that you have such poor evidence for. I mean, that's what I want to say to climate deniers. It's not that I've been proven right and you've been proven wrong. It's that the evidence is so stacked up in favor of the truth of climate change that it's foolish to believe the opposite. Why would you? I mean, what's the advantage? What's the argument for believing the thing that has less evidence? I don't understand that rational. That's not rational. I think that's a better way to do it. I've gone on at length in my book about this, if you're interested. I am. I am. <laughs> and when is your new book coming out? So the new book is called On Disinformation, and it's out in September. It's just been retitled. So if you look for it right now on Amazon, you won't find it. You'll find it under its previous title. But but the new title is On Disinformation, and that's coming out in um, September. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening. For more episodes, go to liveonplatoscape.com. <laughs>